the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an indian we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hello. This is episode three of the State of the Theory podcast. Yay. What are we talking about this week? Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Happy Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. What'd you do? What'd you do for Valentine's Day? Um, nothing much. We got each other presents. What'd you get? I got a video game. You got- I got Journey. Oh. PlayStation 4. That's exciting. Yeah. There was Good. there was one year actually where your wife got you a book, but she ordered you by accident two copies of the same book. Yes. And so she gave me the other one as a Valentine's Day present. So I actually got a Valentine's Day present from your wife. That's good. I have a good wife. You do. What did you guys do for Valentine's Day? Literally nothing. We don't celebrate Valentine's Day. Good on you. It's gotten us into trouble. <laughs> as we will discover. As we will discover, yes. So... Where are we going to start on our Valentine's Day episode? I think we should start where all good British citizens start, and that is at Tesco. Yes. So Tesco is the largest supermarket chain in Britain? Yes. And exists outside Britain? Yes. And why are we starting with Tesco? We are starting with Tesco because they have begun in the last few years a very expensive and perhaps quite profitable marketing campaign around Valentine's Day. And this year's viral video was, some thought it was adorable, we found it quite nauseating, and we also found it quite productive for our discussions about Valentine's Day. We did. We weren't sure if at the start if it was a spoof or not. Yeah, it looks a little it bit like little, satire. Yes, but Tesco doesn't do satire. No, they have no humor. No. They're a humorless corporation. So what's the ad like? The ad. Okay, so the ad begins with a self-professed psychotherapist. That is her given title. And she is on a mission to match make Tesco shoppers according to the items that they put into their shopping baskets. And so the people are faceless. We don't see them. We see their shopping baskets first. And we watch this lady as she goes about matchmaking shopping baskets. And then we join her on a remote computer screen as she watches these individuals that she's paired together meet in the vegetable aisle of a Tesco. And it is as awkward and sweet and heartwarming and vomit-inducing as you might expect. And what's interesting is this ad does all the normal tropes that we've seen in viral videos in the last few years. It's showing potentially mixed race couples, potentially gay couples, There's one older couple that makes it in for like three seconds because we need to represent older people, but we don't want to look at them too closely. It's quite an interesting ad if, like the Coldplay Beyonce video we talked about a couple weeks ago, feels quite miserable to have to watch. Yes. 
It's interesting you described the apparent diversity of the couples. Yeah. And you're right, the couples are, in many ways, refreshingly, surprisingly diverse. You have mixed-race couples, as you said, there's a mixture of sexuality, there is even some generational difference. Is there anything that links them all as one? Well, you only ever have two people at one time. Yes. And there's a clear push towards... So at the end, I forgot to mention, the, the key... The key part of this is they then, after meeting in the vegetable aisle, whatever innuendo that might imply, they go on a date. And they go on a date that is basically just Tesco food, as far as I can tell. And we join them as they sit awkwardly discussing their romantic lives with these complete strangers. And the date is the most perfect, monogamous, push towards courtship that you can imagine. It's recognizable to all people who aspire to or enjoy or have suffered through monogamous relationships in their lives. And it is this aspirational quality to this form of monogamy that we are interested in primarily, at the, at the, certainly at the start when we watch this advert. And uh, a word that we might use to describe this form of privileged, faithful, reproductive monogamy is heteronormativity. Ding, ding, ding! First theory word! How might we define heteronormativity? We are using Lauren Berlant and Michael Warner. So according to Berlant and Warner, heteronormativity involves the institutions, structures of understanding, and practical orientations that make heterosexuality seem not only coherent, that is, organized as a sexuality, but also privileged. They go on to argue that heteronormativity positions heterosexuality as a natural state or projects it as an ideal or moral accomplishment. Contexts that have little visible relation to sex practice, such as life narrative and generational identity, can be heteronormative in this sense. And if we apply this to the Tesco advert, then one of the contexts that apparently have little visible relation to sex practice, but which is being used to generate this narrative of heteronormativity, is, of course, someone's shopping practices. Yes. Well, it's, it's a very... It's the consumption that links the public social sphere to the private domestic sphere. The grocery store is the intersection between the kitchen at home and where you feed your family and the outside world where you purchase goods and sell services. So it is a very kind of evocative setting in order to, you know, to meet a life partner, which this ad is purporting to do. Absolutely. And that, that the way in which that magic is evoked, you know, the magic that allows you to link, to connect the mundane ingredients in your shopping basket to something as enormous as the person you will choose to spend the rest of your life with and perhaps procreate with and so on. The, the magic that allows that connection to be made uh, might be analysed using one of Karl Marx's famous phrases, commodity fetishism. Yes. In other words, the... The products in the basket are important not because of what they are, but because 
of what they represent. Marx talks about a commodity being a mysterious thing. That's the word he uses. And he says, these things as commodities, what makes them, the, the essence of them in the, in the process through which they're transformed from cleaning products to food to cereal bars to whatever, the, the transformation of these objects into commodities and the value relation between the products of labour which stamps them as commodities have absolutely no connection with their physical properties and with the material relations arising therefrom. In other words, it has got nothing to do with how effective or not that particular brand of bleach might be at cleaning. It has got, not, got nothing to do with what we might call its use value, to use the Marxist phrase. But rather that there is a definite social relation between men that assumes in their eyes the fantastic form of a relation between things. In other words, these productions of the human brain, these objects, appear as independent beings endowed with life. They get an identity of themselves. And if we go, go back to the video, it is interesting that the self-proclaimed psychotherapist at the start addresses the baskets as if they are the human beings. So we are shown Mr. Cleaning Guy. Putting the baskets next to each other means they will just sit next to each other and start talking. Yes, and what's interesting too is we see her making matches between baskets, which are all, are all numbered, and then the same basket in the hands of the people when they go to meet each other. And often the basket is the thing that is causing the first conversation. That's what they're talking about. So the individuals themselves are also buying into and reproducing the meaning that is attached to the objects. So we see, for example, it's supposed to be quite a funny moment in the advertisement where one of the women who's being paired with one of the men looks into his basket and says, in, in a semi-judgmental way, cleaning supplies? As if no one buys cleaning supplies at Tesco. And, or perhaps men don't clean. Yeah, perhaps men don't clean. And she's automatically linking, as we are supposed to do, the value of the man to the value of the products in his basket. Once we try to explore the ways in which this connection is being made, what you then realize is the ways in which commodity fetishism is being allied and aligned with heteronormativity. In other words the act of choosing this particular brand of this particular object because it means something to you. It is significant to you above and beyond its role in life. That, that significance is being connected to the significance of the person you are choosing to spend the rest of your life with. Yes, that makes sense to me. Is there a word that allows us to name the process through which these two apparently separate things are being connected. I would definitely call this neoliberalism at work on an individual level. So what is neoliberalism, Hannah? You were setting that up so that I so that I would have to define neoliberalism. Neoliberalism so <laughs> Neoliberalism is essentially an economic and political system which aligns state forces with free market forces. 
And so it subordinates the government and the role of the state and legislation and government institutions to market forces. So it makes the state work on behalf of the market. We might refer to the work of political philosopher Wendy Brown. Yes. Who um, borrows from Michel Foucault, as, as many people do, and talks about this figure of the homo economicus. Yes. The human being whose uh, driving force is a particular form of an economic identity. To use Wendy Brown's phrase, not only is the human being configured exhaustively as homo economicus, all dimensions of human life are cast in terms of a market rationality. While this entails submitting every action and policy to considerations of profitability, equally important is the production of all human and institutional action as rational entrepreneurial action. And I really like that phrase, rational entrepreneurial action, because that summarizes so well the connection that is implicit between the rational action of choosing a particular brand of cleaning products and a life partner, as exemplified in the Tesco advert. Yes, it's creepy. It is very creepy. It's creepy, isn't it? It is very, very creepy. But it doesn't feel it doesn't feel like an unnatural explanation for the way that I certainly feel advertisements and kind of broader social themes and pressures work on my life and on my friends' lives. It explains quite a lot. Give me an example. An example. I mean, the big one is is the wedding industrial complex. You know, the way that um, the cost of hosting a wedding and getting married goes way up. I mean, it has skyrocketed. At the same time as the Internet and social media have made the social value of engaging in a particular set of romantic behaviors significantly more valuable. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it's, it is a process of identity making. Yes. Isn't it? It is a process of redefining, reimagining what it means to be human. Because what it means to be human, according to this narrative, is this, the transformation of, of the biological human or the political human or the social human into a rational entrepreneur, an agent who is willing and able to consume according to the fairly strict regulations of what is to be consumed and how it is to be consumed. Yes. I think what's interesting too, we're not we're talking a bit more about consumption, but there is room to talk about production as well and how choosing a life partner entails choosing choosing a laborer in a sense. You're choosing someone especially and there's there's a gendered element to this as well. You're choosing someone who will either go out of the home and work to bring home money, or you're choosing someone who will work in a domestic capacity for you, um, either as a parent or as a caregiver in some way. And so there's also a neoliberal impetus to find a productive life partner, someone with whom you can create a perfect labor team, in a sense. Like how you married your wife for her salary and she married you for her pension, which is the joke we say. Of course. But, you know, we 
are not analyzing all of these things from outside the system. No. So there is no reason to think that we are immune to forces of neoliberalism any more than anyone else's. What I like about it actually is that it actually explains to me my Mm. life. It explains my experiences to me. And it explains the world that I inhabit and that that I feel. Um, I think that's one of the things that I really like about critical theory is it does actually allow me to describe and analyze my own life more than anybody else's. Give me an example. An example. Well, I think um, last fall, as I was finishing my PhD, I was looking to stay in the UK and I needed to renew or change my visa status because I'm an American citizen. And you yourself have your own adventures in in immigration bureaucracy. Um, A lot of us do. And my partner and I decided to go the partner visa route to get a partner visa for me to get leave to remain. And in order to do so, if you're unmarried, you have to prove that you are in what the government calls a genuine and subsisting relationship. And in order to prove that you're in a genuine and subsisting relationship, one thing you need is evidence of romance. So they ask you to collect all of the birthday cards and, yes, Valentine's Day cards that you have given to each other over the course of your relationship. And like I said, we don't do Valentine's Day. We don't give Valentine's Day cards. We don't even remember when Valentine's Day is happening. So when our lawyers said to us, bring us all your Valentine's Day cards, we looked at each other and we're like, are we not really in love? Do we not qualify as a, as a genuine and subsisting partnership? Because we can't get our act together on Valentine's Day. And it was this this very strange feeling where it doesn't matter how I feel about my relationship at the heart of it, because I'm looking to create a family life with someone who is not a citizen of the same nation state as I am. We have to set up an image of our relationship that subscribes to a lot of these standards and these norms and these values. So we basically went home and collected all the cards we could find and hoped for the best. Of course, in many ways, your relationship is, in spite of the fact that there are no Valentine's Day cards, is still easier to project in the light of an acceptable, monogamous, regulatable relationship in the eyes of the of the yes. UKBA. We are we are so easy to categorize. Because I'm an American citizen, we're both white, we are a heterosexual couple. Oh my gosh, are we a heterosexual couple? We fit, we fit the stereotypes quite, quite well. And we're professionals. And we make quite a lot of money compared to many, many people who try and go through this process. And we are exactly the economic agents that the government wants to preserve and use as an example and as a model. So it turned out that although I had to pay an exorbitant amount of money, and everyone does in order to go through this process, I was granted a visa with very little difficulty. 
Whereas other people are not. Other people struggle for years and years to prove that they're in a genuine relationship. In other words, the evil nexus of neoliberalism, heteronormativity, and commodity consumption that we've been discussing has a regulatory aspect, not just in terms of how we are encouraged to live our lives, but also who is allowed in into this world, who is allowed into the nation state. Yes, and who our citizens are allowed to live their lives with. I think one of the places we could go to is, again, the political philosopher Wendy Brown, who we've we've quoted from before already. And this is from an interview where she says, quote, One of the things we have in nation-states are new forms of governmentality, producing who the we is, that is, we the nation. Who's in? Who's out? Who's needed? Who's not needed? Identities that are racialized, ethnicized, and religionized, sometimes in incoherent yet consequential ways. For example, in US post-9-11 discourse, there is a constant interchangeability between the dark, the Islamic, the Arab, and the Middle Eastern that scrambles who people actually are. So yes, there are these new forms of governmentality and securitization, and there is an intersection between what happens at the borders and what happens within. They are forms of policing, securitizing, categorizing, and identity-making that saturate the internal lives of nations engaged in them and that do not just happen at their borders. And again, it's that notion of identity-making, right? So one of the ways in which the we who is, or, or the person who is allowed in, the body who is allowed in to become part of the we is allowed in as a rational entrepreneurial agent. Yes. Yes, which I am. Yes. I absolutely am. And I'm quite an aspiring entrepreneurial mm. agent. But I think what's especially interesting here is we talk a lot about the body of the migrant. Yes. The body of, of the mobile person. But we don't speak so much about the citizen who is the other half of this partnership. And what's really interesting about a lot of the recent forms of biometric border security and visa processes that really have taken over in the UK and the EU and also the United States is that they regulate very heavily the body of this citizen who is asking for the right to a family life. So they often, like in the UK, we have an income threshold. So the citizen is required to prove that they make at least £18,600 a year, and that threshold is set to increase. The citizen is also required to show that they have lived with, right, it's called a cohabiting partnership, that they've lived with the person that they would like to keep in the UK. There's a lot of onus on this citizen to display to the state that they are, in fact, someone who contributes. And this is how the Home Office actually describes their process. They say, we're happy for you to bring your partner here, as long as you are able to contribute and pay your way. That's the language that's used. So it's not just the migrant, it is also the citizen. And I think especially within the country that we're talking about, wherever it is, we forget that it's, it's citizens who are being reformed and refashioned. Yes. And... In that reforming and refashioning, of course, particular hierarchies are created and established and reinforced. Oh, yes. And the border 
whether it's the actual physical border or sort of the slightly more conceptual border of a visa office or a, or a consulate or an embassy. The border is, in Matthew Coleman's words, this sort of security slash economy nexus where it is, it becomes a, a space, a strategic terrain where various countervailing projects of statehood and statecraft come to bear on one another at sometimes paradoxical contradictory ways because you have the starkly neoliberal free market free trade notion of nation states collapsing in upon themselves because you have free trade across national borders yes goods should be able to cross borders freely without tax and the the concept of free trade across borders as a sign of normality for example between contested borders like india and pakistan yes or us and mexico yes um and and there are plenty more which are even more contested than that um the idea that the movement of commodities across borders is a sign of stability it's a neoliberal ideal it is a neoliberal ideal and that ideal is then juxtaposed contradicted by the nation states desire to control the movement of human bodies yes and how do you balance those two in a world where you ideally want neoliberal market forces to be working along with the nation state rather than against yes it's quite interesting because Coleman and, and Matt Sparky as well who um is a geographer write about the the security economy nexus and Sparky calls it the neoliberal nexus and it is this particular juxtaposition this contradictory nature that actually gets gets worked into border policy and immigration policy such that the more money you make and the more you are able to wield the power of capital so if you're bringing lots and lots of money in or if you're bringing entrepreneurial or innovative skills that will come with patents or um copyright for example you are allowed easy access across borders and at the same time the less you make the less access you have across borders so it creates this this hierarchy that essentially defines a person's worth based on their ability to move and mobilize capital and the security nexus refers as well to the post 9/11 context where there's an attachment particularly to people who don't wield so much capital that they are of greater risk either of being dangerous persons or of being terrorists or of undermining or threatening the nation state in some way and so your your intrinsic worth and also the perception of how safe you are is tied very much to capital so how does this i mean we've in some ways we've moved far away from valentine's day or have we or have how, we how does this connect to the industry that is built around this this day 14th february or or indeed as exemplified by the test squad that we've been talking about what's interesting about 
our discussion about heteronormativity and our discussion about domestic life and romantic relationships is the role that the romantic home life has in underpinning the economy. And this is quite a standard Marxist argument about domesticity and about the 19th century and the development of the public and the private sphere. And they are deeply connected because your personal life is on display in a lot of ways. You know, in in this neoliberal world, your personal life is subordinate to your identity as an economic agent. And so you have to use your personal life as a tool. You have to wield it as a tool, in a sense, either to to wield capital or to to make money or to facilitate the process of making money for your children. And in the same way that the specificity of your class background gives you greater or lesser privilege, the narrative structures of your personal life can give you greater or lesser privilege. In other words, the model of personal life you're following, whether, whether you are in a monogamous heterosexual relationship or a monogamous homosexual relationship, or if you're single, or if you're in a poly relationship, or whatever other model you have, these various models give you greater or lesser possibilities in terms of fashioning a tool to fight with. Yes. So this narrative we've been drawing so far in this episode, aligning heteronormativity, neoliberal economic forces and social forces and border control as part of the same project that regulates us in the same way. Is that too simplistic a form of analysis? Of course. Of course. And there's there's a tension between I think two elements here. One is the heteronormativity particularly relating to the domestic sphere and the role and practice of border security and immigration procedures. And that is the place of heterosexual women. Um, In particular, I'm thinking about my own life, obviously, because that's where I start. And I have greater access to the nation state because I am a straight woman. And because I'm in a straight relationship that can be easily identified and understood by the government. Similarly, if I were to move back to my home state, I could quite easily bring my partner with me. And this is one of the things that was so interesting about the gay marriage debate in the United States that I think a lot of Europeans missed. Because in the United States, gay couples were unable to bring foreign partners to the United States until gay marriage was legalized. So there's a very clear human rights issue here regarding immigration that has been less relevant in the UK, Mm -hmm. given that gay couples can bring partners to the UK. But at the same time, I don't think that mitigates the privilege that my partner and I have as a pair, as a straight pair, when we show up at the home office in Glasgow with our 
application. And it certainly doesn't mitigate the privilege we have when we're wandering around Tesco, hand in hand. We don't encounter homophobic comments and, and individuals. You know, we, we live in a, in a privileged world. But then I go home, and I am then subject to the rules and regulations and strategies of patriarchy, where gender norms and gender normativity impacts on me, particularly in the domestic space. We have all these debates, feminists have all these debates about equal pay and about equal domestic labor and parenting and maternity and paternity leave. These kinds of debates are, are very important right now. And I think they're very much tied to images and, and public perception about heteronormative behaviors and heteronormative practices. And so I'm subject both to the patriarchal forces in the home while at the same time benefiting in the immigration and border control context by being a straight woman. And, I mean, that leads to uh, something that we may well do an episode at some point, which is the relationship between neoliberalism and feminism. Yes. And the way certain strands of feminist movements have been co-opted, arguably, into the neoliberal system. Yes. Where you could make a very strong case that, again, certain forms of feminism have lost the radical edge that it once had because women's liberation becomes defined as neoliberal success. Yes, which is interesting because because um, a lot of critics of mainstream American gay rights discourse mm. that was quite popular in, in the liberal media in the United States. And, of course, the actual gay rights movement was far more diverse mm. and far more complex and interesting and nuanced mm. than this. Mm. But the mainstream arguments about gay rights was about marriage. And, mm. and the pinnacle of gay rights in the United States, according to this kind of liberal media, was gay marriage. But marriage, as we've talked about, is a neoliberal ideal. And so, ultimately, neoliberalism has appropriated and, and co-opted radical strands of social thought and social action through ads like Tesco's. And it's interesting to use the word pinnacle there because, of course, that is also the heteronormative ideal. Yes. In other words, you can be gay and map your life along very specifically heteronormative lines. Yes. And, of course, neoliberalism and the, the neoliberal nation-state encourages you to do that because that way you are more easily assimilated and more easily regulated. Yes. Because you can be gay and you can be a young professional and you can be, be fertile, right? You can have children and have a family and make a ton of money and be a good neoliberal consumer. Who shops at Tesco. Who shops at Tesco. Which is why, of course... Tesco is so keen to feature gay characters in its adverts. Yes. So where might we locate resistance then to this overarching sort of squid tentacle-like beast that is neoliberalism that we've been talking about and the way it's been allied to a particularly heteronormative mode of life? I don't know. It has to be there. If Foucault says resistance is there, hmm. then it is. So it must be in recognizing the 
the other forms of life. Yes. The other forms of affective relationships with people. Yes. And seeing the family and recognizing the family as being something bigger and more complex than the nuclear heteronormative family. Yes. And obviously the Marxist in me would would say, as we've been saying, recognizing the economic impetus in preserving the illusion that the nuclear family is the the idealized family structure. Yes. Um, The role the nuclear family has in propagating a particular class structure, a particular capitalist class structure. Yes, I would say so. Which again takes us back to Tesco. To, oh, everything, everything takes, takes... All roads lead back to Tesco this week. So I think we're done. I'd say so. I think we've reached enlightenment for the week. Yes. So thanks a lot for listening. We'll, yes. we'll be back in a week's time. Thank you so much for continuing to listen and liking us on Facebook and sending us tweets and comments and suggestions. We can't believe it. They're, they're all all hugely appreciated we've got we've started getting requests for for themes and topics and we will incorporate them in future episodes yes we will thank you thank you we hope you enjoyed this episode i have been hannah fitzpatrick and i have been an india richardry you can contact me on twitter at dr h fitz and me at dr an india r our music was provided by the agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.